Welcome to Tempest in a Temenos, where two life coaches discuss esoteric issues related to life, relationships, finding purpose, and self-understanding. I'm Dr. Misty Marlowe. And I'm Suki, aka the Wild Soothsayer. And today's topic is super freak to superpower. <laughs> so this was a super fun one. And Suki and I talked and we're like, oh, we're going to have to split this one up into a three-part series. Because as we started brainstorming for this one, there we were just starting to get overwhelmed that there was so much meat to this topic. Um, so today is part one. And Suki so aptly named it, Freaks of a Feather Flock Together. Yay, I said it. I didn't know <laughs> if I was going to be able to get that tongue twist. So I did it. Yay. Um, so again, freaks of a feather flock together. We're going to talk about your super freak to superpower with regards to your social life and social connections. So you probably have kind of no idea what we're really talking about when we say super freak to superpower, but trust me, we're going to get you there. But for those of you that have been listening to the podcast, you know, we have a bit of a flow that we go through. Um, I'm the psychology professor, so I take the opportunity to geek out over research <laughs> and science, although Suki's just as bad, so it's not like it's just me. Um, I'm not the only one. So, but we started with really geeky science on the topic, and then we're going to kind of flow into life applications. So trust me, you're going to, you're going to know what we mean when we say super freak to superpower soon enough. But to get us started, we're talking about your social life. And I thought it made sense to really talk about like, why are humans social creatures at all, according to science? And we do have a whole field of psychology called social psychology that looks at how human thinking and behavior is influenced by our social context. Um, but I'm going to start by creating this, this framework about why humans are social at all from first an evolutionary psychology perspective perspective, because this was very powerful for me when I was an undergrad at Chapel Hill and I took my evolutionary psychology class and I was like, yay, this is awesome sauce. And I still vividly remember the professor saying, you know why we're social? Because we didn't have refrigerators at one point in history. And I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, uh, <laughs> you, you lost me. You better explain yourself. What do you mean that we're social because we didn't have refrigerators? And he made the point. He said, okay, Think about cavemen and cave women. Let's say you had a good hunt and you brought down an entire woolly mammoth. You and your immediate family are not going to be able to eat that entire woolly mammoth before it rots because you don't have refrigerators. But you look over and caveman Joe off to the side, maybe he's on the edge of starvation and he's actually a point where he's not going to be able to have a successful hunt and he's going to die. Well, are you just going to let this meat rot? Are you going to look over at Joe and be like, hey, Joe, come have some of this mammoth? And Joe's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll have some of that mammoth. Maybe later when you and your family aren't doing so well and haven't had a successful hunt, Joe will remember that during one of his dire times, you gave him some mammoth and he'll do the same for you. And that is like we see like a deep seated need for reciprocity and equity within social relationships that harkens all the way back to what we feel like is this evolutionary predisposition to being social. Ultimately, social behaviors allow us to thrive and allow us to survive in situations where we could not survive if we were just by ourselves. And so, you know, and that goes along with this idea that 
you're of course going to be more social, like with your family and take care of your genetic offspring, according to evolutionary psychology, because it's the theory of the selfish gene, you're going to engage in any behavior that's going to make sure your genetic material gets passed on. Like that's, you know, evolution in general and the selfish gene kind of idea, but we, you know, start forming tribes and social groups because ultimately it assists in our survival. So no refrigerators. Now, part of this evolutionary process, they have identified us having, you know, mirror neuron systems. And these have always been fascinating to me. So, um, I forget exactly what decade it was. It's relatively recent. Like it was after the 1960s or 70s, there were researchers in a lab that were looking at monkeys and they did that gross thing where they have their like brain kind of exposed so they can plug an electron to a very specific group of neurons. And they were actually looking at motor neurons and seeing these little neurons fire when monkeys picked up peanuts. It was like a really simple motor behavior. So the monkey would be sitting there and would pick up a peanut and its little brain would go do, 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 and they'd be like, look at that. We identified, you know, motor neurons in the neurological tract. Well, they left the monkey hooked up and hadn't disconnected the equipment yet, but the monkey was sitting there and had no peanuts around him whatsoever. And a researcher walked into the lab to clean up some peanuts and the monkey was doing nothing but sitting there and watching the researcher pick up the peanuts and the neurons activated in almost exactly the same way as when the monkey picked up the peanuts himself. So they started out calling them monkey see, monkey do neurons, and then later evolved it into the mirror neuron system because they say like this, this system in our brain, I think it's behind your temples on either side of your brain in the right and the left hemisphere. It actually helps you with social behavior, language acquisition, and empathy. So it's this whole, it's a system built into our brains neurologically that help us be social effectively because they like language, like why we have language, because it helps us communicate amongst ourselves as a group, we can communicate about where the game is that we are all going to hunt and eat. Uh, we get to talk about the past, the present, and the future. It helps us communicate and share culture and ritual and expectations. Um, and it also, like an example, one of our very famous psychologists uses, and I'm blanking on this man's name. I can see his face. It's terrible. I'll have to put it in the comments when I remember who he is. But he talks about like it being this big jump in evolution. He's like, so think it like if you had to stay warm in the winter and evolve a pelt like that would take millions of years of evolution but with this mirror neuron system you're a child you have an adult elder around you you see them kill a bear skin it and wear the bells bears pelt and you can immediately start doing that and it creates this big jump in evolutionary behavior that's going to assist your survival so again that whole living in groups and it assisting us being able to thrive and survive um, so being able to learn very quickly and immediately by watching someone else do something is that you know adaptive utility of the mirror neuron system as well so, and we'll talk a little bit more later about how people who are not neurotypical for people, for example, with autism spectrum disorders, that is where they see the primary neurological dysfunction. Like they can take individuals who are neurotypical, they can put little EEGs on their head and they can actually record, um, you know, activity in the mirror neuron system and so, you know, you or I, if you don't have an autism spectrum disorder, can actually watch a video of someone open and closing their hands. 
and you're just sitting there watching and your little mirror neuron system will go dee, 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 dee. Now, if someone has an autism spectrum disorder, depending on just how profound it is, they'll be sitting there in the EEG. They'll watch the video of somebody opening and closing their hands and their brain is silent. Their brain has no response to watching somebody engage in an action. So that's where like their individuals with the more profound set of autism spectrum disorders will not um, mimic facial expressions, body language, social cues, and at the very far end of the spectrum will not be able to acquire language um, because all of that requires that activation of your mirror neuron system. And there is def definite difficulty with social functioning for those individuals as well. But we gotta be careful because I, I feel like autism spectrum disorders have really been homogenized and lumped into one category when I feel like there's vastly different functioning and uniqueness uh, amongst the, the spectrum that needs to be acknowledged. But we'll come back to that later so that's some now, of that with oh, go mirror on. neurons mm -hmm. um that's also when we talk about when children start to develop what they call the theory of mind where they're able to mm -hmm. use empathy and imagination to sort of figure out what is this other person thinking oh that is perfect free, yes. right and around that's free, um, shift from egocentric to being able to uh imagine what the other person is thinking like oh uh, if I, if somebody bites me, it hurts. So if I bite them, it hurts. That's why they're crying. Yeah. So in <laughs> developmental psychology, uh, we talk about this so much in the class. It's always like a cornerstone of the textbook. When we get to that place, we'll talk about theory of mind in the famous research studies on perspective taking where, where they would have children stand behind a two-way mirror. So they're with an adult behind a two-way mirror that looks into a playroom and they would watch another child in the playroom. And they would watch the child playing with the ball. And for the other child, a researcher in the room with the other child would say, take your ball and put it in this basket on the center of the table. And they'd be like, okay. And then the other child would be escorted out of the playroom. And then the child on the side of the two-way mirror would see without the other kid, that researcher would come back in the room. They would take the ball out of the bucket and they would go hide the ball somewhere else, like behind the couch or something. And then they would turn to the child that's in the room with them behind the two-way mirror. And they'd say, hey, when the other kid comes back into the room, where are they going to look for the ball? Below a certain age, kids will say behind the couch because they don't have great theory of mind. They know where the ball is because they watch the person move it. So they think everybody knows where the ball is because they don't get that people don't know what they know. Like they don't get that somebody has different perspective. Um, when a child gets older, exactly what you said, they'll be like, oh, well, I know where the ball is, but the other kid didn't see the researcher move it. So when the other kid comes back in the room, they'll still look in the bucket. Individuals with autism spectrum disorders, again, just depending on exactly how their symptoms manifest and how profound their disorder is, even at older ages, will still say the kid will look behind the couch. Like they'll, they'll not ever get into that ability to engage in perspective taking. There's also some research studies about like having this big volcano on a table and it having like a house and a tree. And then one researcher being on the other side and the kid being, uh, you know, on the, the juxtaposed side of the table and just saying, hey, little kid, you've walked around this table and seen all elements of it. The researcher is over there. You're over here. What do you see? Well, I see A, B, C, or D. What does the researcher see? 
And when they have theory of mind, they can actually reference their memory about what it was like to stand on that side of the table and enter into the perspective of the researcher and say what they probably see from their vantage point. But when they're too young or there's an autism spectrum disorder, all they will report is what they themselves are looking at right then. So yes, thank you, Suki. That was great to bring that up because those are some really fun research studies. Um, so theory of mind related to that as well, yes. Which makes sense that that's probably, that's about the eight. Three is about the eight. Two and a half to three is when kids start to lie. So they also uh, can start to figure out, they don't know what I know. I can deceive them. Yeah, but it's, um, it's great before then though, because when they're younger, they just assume you know everything they've done. <laughs> and then they get away with nothing. Well, I did hear a guy on the radio on Hidden Brain this weekend. And he said that um, the moment on his kid's third birthday, because this is what he does. He researches little kids and lying and on his oh. kid's third birthday to celebrate he took him into the lab to see if his kid would lie and he was thrilled he's like oh he's lying he's right on target <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, he's so like, developmentally appropriate he's a dirty little liar yeah, yeah like, so was, he was thrilled and i was like well <laughs> we know your child has developed theory of mind he clearly understands that these researchers don't know what he knows and he was just thrilled that his kid lied on his third you know, but that's still a changing and, and a process that's becoming more complex because like for the play therapy I do an actual intervention like it's, it's pretty common for parents to be like, let's say they knew the kids stole the Doritos out of the cabinet, like they might have been around the corner and see have seen the kid do it. And but there's this tendency for some parents to go up to the kid and be like, did you steal those Doritos? Did you steal them? And then they get so mad when the kid looks them right in the eye and it's like, no. And it's like, you're lying to me. I'm like, could you not set your kid up for a lie? Because they are still young, which means logical and rational reasoning has not kicked in all the way yet. So there is an element of like, well, if you don't know, like, why would I tell you? Or like, <laughs> you know, and it's not necessarily maliciously. It's that like, if you're asking me if I did, that means you don't know if I did. Like kids don't get that double talk. It's like, you're asking me if I stole the Doritos, but what you're really doing is being like, by the way, I know you stole the Doritos. Like kids don't get that. And so the parent like feels betrayed. I'm like, no, with this age group, you're supposed to walk up to them and say, I know you stole the Doritos. <laughs> this is going to be your consequence for that action. You, you're not creating double talk in that situation because kids don't get that implicit communication of I'm asking, but I'm really telling like they don't get that. So it's like, don't, you know, kids are evolving cognitively and going through different stages of development, but sometimes adults expect too much logical and rational thinking from kids that are too young and they shouldn't. So with kids, especially, yes, they are doing really cool things, but communicate with them in a very direct, straightforward manner. And um, even in knowing that they'll lie, communicate with them and go ahead in an early age, let it, let them know you don't accept the lie and don't weirdly lie to them by presenting information in a way that kind of insinuates you don't know something. Cause that is an, like uh, a weird twisted way of miscommunicating kind of lying on a certain level. So don't role model inappropriate behavior either. I got, I went off on a tangent. Yeah. Got my One more quick that. story. And then I yeah. promise we'll go on to, <laughs> but hey, this is good. My go, dad go. used to do this. Cause I was really literal and at some point they were like we think you're subthreshold uh on on asperger's and i was like i think maybe i just like people to speak plainly because i'm not into subtext but that's another yeah. part. but anyway my dad <laughs> used to come in and he'd be like i'd be watching some show and i'd be really interested. and he'd be like you want to go take a bath and i'd be like 
no, I'm watching my show. And he's like, that's a hint. And I'm like, no, that's a question. Like, you asked me a yes or no question. Do you want to take a bath? And the answer is, no, I do not want to take a bath. I want to watch my show. Yeah, don't be and mad at me when I was just honest with you. You, you know, it's like, a that's a hint. It's like, okay, people. Most people, not good at hints. Mm-hmm. But kids, not good at hints. Like, hints don't work for children. Mm-hmm. Subtext is not good. Like, ask a plain question. Like, the, the answer, the, the, what you should have said is, it is time to take your bath. Because if you ask a kid a question, they're going to give you an answer. If you said, do you want to do something? They're going to tell you no. Because mm-hmm. they're in the, it's like, no, I'm in the middle of watching my show. Back up. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, perfect example of that. And I, I get to have the, the, the fun time, but also at times the misfortune of explaining that to people. It's like direct communication is good for all of us. So yeah, that's great stuff. We're probably gonna have to do a whole podcast just on that kind of stuff. So, um, but for, for back to our, our social aspects of why we do it and, and neurology and all of that, um, kind of moving up the ladder, like how powerful is this urge for us to be part of a group. Um, Some of the studies I love about that are on conformity. And of course, the most famous psychology studies on conformity that got the ball rolling were the ASH studies. So these were like ASH, A-S-H-E, and his name was Solomon Ash. And he was saying like, really like, how, what conformity, what does it look like? And he, I love his research studies because of the perfection of the simplicity of it. He had a, like a bunch of people wait in a waiting room and he's like, okay, we're going to have you all participate in this study on visual acuity. It's going to be real straightforward. We're just going to see how well you can see stuff. And so everybody's like, yeah, okay. And they um, brought him into this room. And for the original studies, they were sitting at almost like a horseshoe shaped table. And there were little number cards in front of them, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I think the groups were typically about nine people. And um, what they didn't know is that eight out of the nine people going in that room were Confederates, which meant they were working with the research study. They had been given tasks to do. They were not just, hey, what's going on in here today? Let me go do the research study. There was only one actual research participant at any given time. And they had to um, make sure they positioned him to sit in seat number seven because they wanted him to have a lot of people respond before him and just a couple of people respond afterwards. So they would navigate position this guy to sit in seat number seven. So it would start out all hunky-dory. They're all sitting at the table and they're like, we're going to hold up a card that has a line on it. And then we're going to hold up a second card that has a multiple choice option of A through C of lines of different length. And all you got to do is say A, B, C, or D for the line that is the exact same length as the original line. A don't get more simple. So the first two times around, it was super easy, like, because they were just supposed to answer honestly, like accurately. Here's the line, A, B, C, or D, B, 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 and everybody go around. So they do that about two times, and then the Confederates do, around about, I think it was time three, the first guy at the table was supposed to give a wrong answer, and every other person who was a Confederate was supposed to give the same wrong answer. So let's say the correct answer was A, it's B, 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 B. And then you would get to guy number seven and they were just watching to see what he would do. And what they noticed is that the first couple of times around, 
they would give the correct answer and it would be like a but it would you would see hear the change in their tone of voice like there was questioning um by the end of the research study a person gave a clearly wrong answer i think it was around 70 percent of the time so they would start out with these trials like the first one or two times given the correct answer and after a little while, they would start going along and conforming with the group and giving the same wrong answer as the rest of the group. And when I heard that for the first time, I was like, 70%? They're like, uh-huh, 70%. And you would see, like, when you watch the videos of this research study, it wasn't like they were, like, all happy about it. Like, by the time they started conforming with everybody else, you would see a change in body language. They would start drooping. They would start looking depressed. Some people even stopped bothering to look at the cards and just started listening to what everybody else said and saying it. So that right there was, like, disturbing. But what I loved is their debriefing afterwards. So they brought everybody back. Oh, and I should say, let me pause myself for the, like, the 30% that didn't conform. I love them. They are my people. They're my rebels. Cause they just got pissier. Like they are, their attitude would just start increasing. <laughs> like they would just start getting like a look and they'd be like, like it would be B, 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 uh, C. Uh, like, and they start like looking at everybody, like getting all pissed off and, and more and more of an attitude. I'm like, you're my people, my nonconformist. You get all angry about standing up for what you think is right. Like, and you know, this was a simple context. So, but when they took the, the people back and debriefed afterwards, for the ones that conformed, they had to correct the deception, which is required for research studies. They had to say, hi, sorry, we know that we told you that you were here to do a research study on visual acuity. What you were really here to do a study on was conformity. We had everybody else set up to lie or give the incorrect information. And we wanted to see if you would stand for what you knew to be true and say the correct answer, or if you'd go along with the group and you did go along with the group. Could you explain to us why? And I was like, this is like gold. There were a good number of people that said, I did not want to seem weird or to stand out or to be different. And we refer to that as normative conformity. People who so desperately want to be normal, they'll go along with the group even when they know it's wrong because there is something just adversive to them standing out. And why is it adversive to stand out? I say, give people a break for wanting to blend in and conform with the group because it's based in evolutionary psychology. It can actually be perceived somewhere deep in your soul as threatening your ability to survive if you do anything that might get you kicked out of a group because there can be this like very deep instinctual understanding that my survival is more assured when I'm accepted and considered to be part of my group. I'm safer. So that's one aspect of it, normative conformity. So Sookie Well, there's a guy, yeah. and I think his last name is Wilson. His first name is definitely Darren. Yeah. He's a British guy, and he did a show called Push, and he did a similar experiment, only they had to actually stand. Mm -hmm. And if they stayed sitting when the rest of the group standing, he eliminated them mm -hmm. because he needed people prone to conformity because he was going to try to trick them into murdering somebody later. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he did debrief them after after that uh and if you get it, if you if you're if you're a subscriber to netflix watch it it is disturbing just because if you're somebody like me you're like boy if this was like 
an NIMH funded study, they would never let you get away with this. Um, mm-hmm. They would just be like, yeah, there, there's an eth-. And even I'm watching and I'm like, this is fascinating. Is it ethical? Like, am I complicit? Um, but it, it ends up, it, it, he handles it in a way so that everybody is okay. But he actually gets people to stand and write on paper for a test for no apparent logical reason. Oh my goodness. But Just- yeah, hold hold on to that one though. Cause I feel like that, like speak a little bit more to that when we do the obedience stuff. Cause that's also like a whole new level. Um, but for the, uh, for normative conformity, I want to be normal, but the one that really made me upset um, that is going to be very much related to life coaching and our talk about limiting beliefs and how we are like some of these maladaptive behaviors were our attempt to uh, adapt to an unhealthy environment environment is that a good number of people were like, I started to question my own perception of reality. And they're like, when everybody else around me was given the exact same wrong answer, I started to go to myself and say, did I, did I mishear the instructions? Are my eyes not working as well as I thought they were? Like that is how deeply it began to cause people to question their own reality. So give people a break if they conform, but again, like really treasure those people who are solid in their knowledge of themselves and staying it for what they know is right. Now, just as a side note, there are like, they've done so much research in the conformity now that they actually know what tends to push you toward more towards conformity versus away from it. Cause they've done like attenuated, mildly changed versions of the study to see when conformity stopped. And that was really cool research too. Like, first of all, you're always going to be lot more, lot more likely to conform form when you have a high need for group cohesion. And this is where I worry for parents about peer pressure. I'm like, it's not like that your children are over there and it's the really cheesy 1980s, like, you know, after school special where they're like, if you want to be cool, do drugs. I'm like, that is not how freaking peer pressure works. Peer pressure works like your, your child loves their peer group with every ounce of their soul. And then one day, They go to a party at one of their friend's houses and their friend's like, hey, come on back, have a beer and and smoke some weed. And they're like, what? And they're like, oh, you don't want to or you don't do that. And they're like, no. They're like, oh, cool. No problem. No problem. Like you do you. Like, we're glad that you're trying to be clean and not do that stuff. We're going to go drink and do drugs, but you do you. So they start feeling ostracized from their group because everybody's getting drunk and high together, having an awesome time. And they're over there sober, not doing anything. And they don't share the experience with this group that they value their membership in. And then like the next week, they hear from everybody that they had another party, but this one they weren't invited to. And they're like, why didn't you invite me? It's like, oh, we know that you don't like to do that stuff. And we knew that we we're going to be drinking and smoking, but we're so proud of you for not doing that. Stand by your guns or whatever. And the person's like, well, I, do I just now, am I left out? Because everybody thinks I'm a loser because I don't know how to have fun with them. And then the child will reach the crossroads of choosing a new peer group or doing with what their, you know, their peers want to do. So it's, that's a little bit like keeping, that's that peer pressure, that desire to maintain membership in a group where you value your membership, that cohesiveness. It always starts with the love bomb people. It always starts with the love bomb. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter, you know, and you even see that in religious groups mm-hmm. or um your more predatory MLMs, they always start with the love first. It's all about welcoming you in, what a great person you are. The other negative maladaptive behaviors are trying to get you 
to, to do other things that you that would go, normally go against your moral compass, your ethics, all of that follows. But it always starts with getting you in and making you feel a part of that cohesive group and getting you bonded first. So you never see that, you know, 1980s John Hughes saved by the bell type stuff mm -hmm. where, you know, you make the choice at the beginning. Like that's so never how it works. People. Nope. No, no, no. So um, now things that help people stand against conformity. If they had even one person give a, a correct answer with them, like conformity rates plummeted. It's almost like if you just know you're not alone. So the more unanimous the other part of the group is, the harder it is. But even if you have even just one person who's willing to go against a group with you, it's better. If you care nothing about your group membership and, or if you know you're a subject matter expert and they're not. Like I, I, I am honest, like if I went to go do a calculus problem and somebody's like, yeah, this is the answer. I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. So yes, yes, that's the answer. I'm going along with you. If I was with a bunch of people about psychology and they were all given a wrong answer, I'd be like, I know I'm the subject matter expert. So y'all can give whatever wrong answer you want, but I'm going to get the right one. Like if you know that you have a certain level of expertise that alters, but you're more likely to conform in situations where there's ambiguity, you don't feel like you're confident and someone who is suffering from very low self-confidence, like in situations with like intense depression, um, they are more likely to conform as well. So that's another thing I worry about teenagers. It's like, they're going through so much identity development, hormonal changes due to puberty. They have very low self-confidence because they're still evolving into their identity will make them more vulnerable to that conformity as well. So that's conformity. It's, you know, we, we are sucked into it and we feel that pressure for the most, unless you're part of that 30% who don't give a damn. Um, if you're like 70% of the population is actually neurologically hardwired into you. Now the step up from that, that takes it to a scary place are the Milgram studies on obedience and Stanley Milgram actually worked on that research project with Solomon Ash. And then we had everything that happened with the Nazis and they, I think it was like something like he was an American Jew and he was watching like the Nuremberg trials and he was seeing some of the people that like did the gas chambers be like, I was just following orders. I shouldn't be like prosecuted. And he was like, are you kidding me? Like, is that really like, do they really think that's a justification that I was following orders? Therefore, I'm not culpable. Um, so he said, okay, I'm going to do a research study in the United States and I'm going to see what results I get. He's like, but I don't want there to be any like thing special. Like I want it to be your average Joe. Like I want it to be your very typical person. I don't, cause you know, some people would say, well, that it was just this Nazi party kind of thing. And he was like, hmm. Was it though? Was it? Let's see what happens with just your average typical person. So he sent out these flyers to solicit participation in the research study. And it seriously said something along the lines of, I want your average shows. I want your barbers. I want your auto mechanics. I want, you know, your most typical person ever. We're going to do a research study on um, the impact of punishment on memory or something like that. It was something like whether or not you remember better if you're punished for forgetting stuff. It was something about memory and not what it was really about, of course. And he said, we're going to pay you $10 or whatnot to participate in this study. Um, so what he did that made the research study key is that he dressed up the researcher as an authority figure, which was the white coat of a doctor. 
they put on a uniform that represented that they were the authority figure, the researcher would go out to the lobby and be like, hi, both of you are in our research study today. We're going to randomly assign one of you to be the teacher and one of you to be the learner. What they didn't know is the assignment was not actually random. The person who was going to be the learner was the confederate like it was uh, it was somebody who's participating in the research study but they do the random assignment and then they said both teacher and learner walk back to me to the room where we're going to put the learner we're all together in this group they did that on purpose because they wanted the teacher to know exactly where the learner was located in the building relative to where they were going to be during the research study they also wanted the teacher to overhear everything about the conversation that was about to take place because they were doing a setup so they take the learner into a room and you can see the videos of it online. The guy like takes off his blazer and goes to sit down in the chair. He's dressed very nicely because this was like the late 50s, early 60s, something like that. Everybody wore suits everywhere they went. And he takes off his coat and they're strapping him into a chair. And they're like, so learner, you're going to be in here by yourself, but we can hear everything you say over the microphone. We are, and um, you're going to be given information that you have to retain. And when you are ready to respond, you have the numbers one through four that you're going to be able to press in front of you. If you get it right, yay, we move on to the next question. If you get it wrong, you're going to get an electric shock. And then we move on to the next question. And every time you get something wrong, the shock will increase. And um, like, I like to think for me, I'd have been like, what now? Like, huh? Uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Like, I feel like I'd ask a lot of questions. But that's why it was in a Confederate, because he just said, okay. And then he lets him strap him in. And he's like, by the way, I just think I should mention that I have a heart condition. I think it's going to be fine and not an issue, but I thought I should let you know. And the researcher says, hunky dory, thanks for letting us know. But again, like here's your here's how you answer your multiple choice question one through four and you're going to hear us through the microphone up there and we're going to be able to hear everything you say in this room through the microphone and we're just going to be right down the hall great nice now what the teacher did not know is that guy was not strapped in that guy was not getting any electric shocks like all the rest of what happened was a pre-recorded series of responses so that every teacher that came in to participate in the study would have the exact same experience. But they take the teacher into that room just down the hallway and sit him in front of a shock bank. <laughs> and there are levers. And just in case you're like me, that I'd be like, I don't know electricity. Like, I don't know how many, I, I know what a nine volt battery is. And it kind of stings a little bit when you touch your tongue to it. Like, that's what I know. They had both quantitative and qualitative descriptors on each of the lever, which means it would say 15 volts, very mild shock. And it went all the way up to danger. And then the last one was like three X's symbolizing death. And I think it was either 450 or 475 volts. So they made it very clear that at the upper level, you can kill a bitch with this thing. Like it went all the way, like danger, like it had words like danger, like at the end. And they sat the teacher down and said, okay. Like start reading the stuff to the guy. Here's your big packet of information. And when, when he starts answering stuff wrong, like shock him. And the researcher sat behind the teacher in the corner of the room with their clipboard and their white jacket in the chair. The teacher, or not the teacher, the researcher's job was at any point, if the teacher tried to stop the process, they were supposed to apply psychological pressure to get them to keep going. 
they were supposed to say continue teacher it's imperative that the research study keeps going and if at any point the teacher said but what if he gets hurt or what if something bad happens the researcher was supposed to say i take re full responsibility for anything that happens so they actually went and interviewed 40 psychological experts before the research study ever began. And Solomon, uh, not Solomon, I'm sorry, Stanley Milgram said, what do you think is going to happen? They said one in a thousand people will go all the way to the end because they're sadists and they enjoy hurting others. But only one in a thousand, everybody else is going to stop at mild shock or moderate shock. 66% of teachers went all the way to the end where they would have killed somebody. And what they did with the audio is that as the shock continued, the guy started screaming and yelling. There was at a certain point where all you could hear the guy saying, let me out, let me out. I don't want to be in here. Let me out. I don't want to do this anymore. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. There was uh, another portion where he says, my arm is hurting. And then if they got all the way to the end, they had a sound that made it sound like a guy falling out of his chair and he stopped responding to the questions being asked. So there's like a legitimate belief that by if the, the people that went all the way to the end by the time they got there that they could have believed they were shocking a dead body. Um, you know, I don't want to give the impression that these teachers were just sitting there being like hunky dory flip 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 flip. That is not what they did the 66% that kept going. They would like when the guy started yelling and screaming they would like you see a lot of them push back from the table and turn around like cross their arms and start looking at the teacher and be like he wants to go like this is hurting him. He wants to go. We need to stop this. No, you got to continue. It's really important. The research study continue. You got to keep going. You got to keep going. Um, and they, okay. Like, and at some points in the, in the documentary, you can actually visibly see the teachers starting to sweat, becoming distressed and upset. But even with that being said, 66% went all the way to the end. Now, what also got me is they said, okay, like 33% refused and didn't go all the way to the end. But do you know, even out of the 33%, not one went to directly offer assistance to the other person without first getting permission. So even the ones that are like, nope, I'm not doing it, still were like, is it okay if I go check on the guy? Because they wanted to see like out of the ones that refused who would be like, you know what, you're crazy. What you're doing is wrong. I think that guy's hurt. I'm gonna get up and go check. That's why they made sure he, they knew where he, the person was. They made absolutely certain that they knew where the other person was located. That's why they walked with them and walked down the hallway. And not one went and offered assistance without first getting permission. That blew my friggin' mind. What I did find interesting was that he did do one follow-up experiment where instead of the researcher doing that kind of monotone, the study must continue, keep shocking mm -hmm. him, he gave the research permission to be like, you have to shock him. And something about being told you have to would trigger something in the teacher that was like, oh, hell no, I don't have to. You can't tell me what to do. And, and I was like, that is, I don't know. And I don't think he even, I don't even think for when he debriefed them, it's like even they couldn't quite articulate mm -hmm. what it was but something about being something about the phrase you have to that was the thing that seemed to snap them out of it but there was something about just the, the way I think it was partly the monotone of it that this almost like neutral state in the initial one 
that it was almost like there's no it was almost I don't know it was I, it was just creepy in a way to watch it that as distressed as they are it was it was the research it was almost like they were fighting against jello it was like trying to nail jello against yeah. the wall <laughs> but it was almost as if once they were given something that they could fight against mm-hmm. and i've always wondered if that was like when they perceived the authority figure as now being attacking towards them it created a um, a different us versus them mentality as opposed to feeling like they had pressure to align um, with, uh, the authority figure. And that, so that's been in the back of my mind, but almost like the conformity study, like they did the initial one. And part of the reason why that study blows my mind is like these guys, like when they left, they were like, why'd you do it? The 66%, like, why would you have killed somebody just because a dude in a white lab coat told you to, and you're getting paid 10 bucks. And they fell apart. They were like, oh my God, if you'd ever said that I would have done that prior to the study, I would have never believed I had it in me. I would have never thought I would have just be pressured into killing somebody that easily. Like they had a psychological breakdown. A lot of them did, but they were like, so why don't you just tell us to go fuck off? Like, <laughs> why don't you just tell us I'm not doing it? And they're like, there was something inside of me that felt like I, like I had to almost like psychological shackles that were pressuring. And so that study is the reason that you have to emphasize to anybody in a research study, you do not have to participate and you may leave the study with zero negative consequences at any second you would like to. And the quickest way that you can get your license pulled, your degree taken away from you and bad things happen to you legally as a researcher is if they ever felt like you were um, having involuntary participation in a research study where people were being pressured. That is the quickest ethical way other than falsifying data that somebody can be like, you ain't a researcher anymore and you won't have a lot of legal charges and have to pay a lot of compensation a lot of people for the psychological damage you did to them I think a lot of those guys from the initial study did end up getting some therapy um but it like it really changed unless of course you were in a reality tv show in which you can experiment on people yeah alcohol I mean, they're still open to liability. So it's still like if they didn't handle that very perfectly, no, it's not like your license is going to get pulled. But I still think for some of these shows, I think I've heard and I can't pin it down. So I need to be careful about this. But I think I heard of people being sued. Like it's that whole like, like you did something to me in the context of this reality show and it was psychologically damaging and some civil lawsuits that have been won. So even these shows need to be very careful uh, about what they do, even though they're not bound by the same ethics as a researcher who's part of an institution who reports to an institutional review board and all that jazz. Um, Now, another kind of more recent one that happened after the obedience study was one that's definitely like had like eight friggin' movies made about it. And there's a whole website about it. And, you know, um, um, Philip Zimbardo, the primary researcher on the study, has been interviewed 8 million times, and it led to his entire, like, 40, 50-year body of research, the Stanford Prison Experiment. So this is, again, related to social psychology, about how you put on an identity based on your work role, how you dress, and that was a little bit about the obedience. Like, when they did versions of the Milgram study, but it wasn't, like, somebody in a lab coat or somebody who's an authority figure, people did just tell them to fuck off. They're like, go do that. It's like, who are you? Bye-bye. Like, I don't listen to you there was something about the uniform something about the role that created this need for obedience and the stanford prison experiment randomly assigned two groups to be um, prisoners or guards supposed to run two weeks had to stop it at six days because they were scared somebody was going to get hurt because the guards were already starting to be abusive towards the inmates now 
nobody really thought somebody was a guard or really thought somebody was an inmate like they knew it was a research study but already like subjugating the prisoners the prisoners experiencing emotional trauma becoming physically ill and despondent and um had to like had to stop it because it got that out of hand that quickly and that they came back to this is like your your group identification how you internalize expectations for your behavior based on your group membership and that group can be anything in this case it was just your job like you know if you were a prison guard versus um, if you were you know one of the prisoners themselves uh, and Stanley Milgram went on to write book, uh, you know a really cool book called the Lucifer effect like how uh, you know good people can do bad things and how essentially we all have the potential for evil within us um, based on what context we're placed in and what social pressures are put on us um, like a lot of military stuff and like torturing of um, like war prisoners he said these aren't really necessarily evil soldiers who enjoy torturing others as part of the culture that is created within the military that actually espouses this type of horrific behavior and so to change it you got to start at the top kind of thing and one thing that interested me about the stanford prison experiment is that for the people that were prisoners they actually went and picked them up and arrested them mm-hmm. in a car fingerprinted them <laughs> so, yeah. i mean it's like the humiliation of being visibly picked up and arrested you know people that know you don't know you're in an experiment that humiliation and that mm-hmm. being taken away in handcuffs started before they were even in the fake prison incarceration setting um and so it's like that sort of breaking down and putting you in a position of feeling dehumanized and compliance started very, very early um, mm-hmm. in the experiment before you even found yourself encountering the people that were in the role of the guards. Um, but it's, it, it is shockingly disturbing how that sort of uh establishing a role of you are in a role of compliance um and you are in the role of having quote unquote power or control over somebody just mm-hmm. um immediately shifted especially from the guards and saying well just how far can i go and sort of slipping into the role of well they deserve to be punished mm-hmm. and what does punishment look like and it and here's and and the thing is is that they what were they punishing them for they had committed no crime so it's punishment and they knew that like it would be one thing if deception had been used and they thought they deserved the punishment but they knew like they everybody knew that everybody else there was a college student and this was a research study and that was something in the post interviews like um i think it was in bardo like made it very clear he's like just be clear like like the people that left the research study never said like I left the study like they still got so into it psychologically they said I left the prison like they were still using that verbiage and like they interviewed a guard and a prisoner um, right after it happened but then like several times like further and like the guard was like if you'd ever told me I'd have done that I would have said no like I didn't believe I had that in me but I got into that mindset I felt like everything I was doing is justified like because a lot of the like kind of torturous behaviors they started doing to the prisoners was because the prisoners got so sick of how they were being treated they were planning an uprising like and it was like really like y'all realize like two weeks and this is just pretensies right but it got into them like so psychologically so fast it just continued and like this is an example a very powerful one of something that's happening for us at all times always that we have an in-group bias and an out-group bias that we draw 
our identity from our group membership. Everybody does. And people were like, but why? Like, why should you draw any of your identity from that? And they said it preserves self-esteem, which you need good self-esteem to function in this world, not be depressed. So if you believe good things about the groups that you are members of, even to the degree of believing that your group is superior to other groups, it helps you feel good things about yourself. It preserves a healthy sense of identity. But there's a dark flip side to that coin, which is if you're believing like sometimes maybe unrealistically positive things about your group, what does that mean about all the other groups? That's where the, the out group bias comes in. It's like, well, my group's great, but all the other groups suck. And start believing like negative things about the other groups. And where it gets really, really big is we see in times, especially of limited resources, stress, tension, war, that it will actually go all the way out to like scapegoating the other groups and blaming them for the woes of your groups instead of your group taking any responsibility for how they can contribute to their own problems. Um, and there's also something called the out group homogeneity effect, almost to make it easier to believe bad things about the other group, you homogenize them and don't realize or fail to recognize the uniqueness of the individuals operating within the other group and you just make them all the same um, so that you can almost dehumanize them on some level. So that makes it even easier to project. And again, the evolutionary psychologists like circle back around. They're like, yeah, like think about you've developed social groups, you have tribes, but you're cavemen and cavewomen, which means that if another tribe comes in and tries to take your resources, you might have to kill to defend them and so it's going to be easier to be like anybody who doesn't look like me kill them anybody who does isn't like dressed like my group kill them anybody who's not part of my family kill them and it's i'm going to be okay with defending my territory and my resources and with killing these people because i will maybe illogically believe more negative things about them to justify and say they deserve my aggression um, so again that's you just see it amplified in times where there is perception of limited resources or situation of frustrated frustration or aggression with meeting goals. Um, it just gets so super amplified. Um, so again, like anytime somebody wants to feel bad about it, I'm like, it's kind of rooted in evolutionary psychology, but we are also intellectually very high functioning as human beings. And I do have the expectation that we will not just settle into our biases that are logical and irrational. We'll be aware of them and challenge them. And take a step back and remember, um, you know, maybe cooperation is going to get you further than you think you know there's an old nigerian proverb that you can you know that you can go uh solo you can go faster but together you can go farther so um you may it's not always a zero-sum game in fact rarely is it zero-sum mm -hmm. so you're in you know there may be a sort of a um, lizard brain inclination of hoarding resources to the point of aggression but uh, it may be that, it, that the right behavior is to say, wait a minute, if we share slash barter slash cooperate, we actually all come out better. But the thing you have to do is pause, take a breath, tell the lizard brain to shut the fuck <laughs> up and really think about what you're doing. Um, but the first thing you got to do is say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe the in-group is the human group. You know, people. yeah, and um, I do say in my classes because I like to take it to a freaky deaky place. I was like, Guess when all of humanity on earth will unite? When we know for a fact there are aliens because <laughs> the us versus them will become humanity 
on all of earth versus the aliens and sure shit what do you see in the independence day movies it's like the entire planet all the cultures on planet earth unite when they're trying to invade us and will or when the zombies attack or zombies yes (laughs) when the zombie apocalypse comes it's just going to be all of humanity unites because you either a zombie or not a zombie and that's what the in-group versus out group is going to be but yeah they we can artificially like tweak people psychologists if they want to use their powers for evil we can just i mean it is so easy to create us versus them we are we are so easily tripped up and that's why i like speaking about it and getting the word out because my policy is that anybody that wants to say they're not biased about something is absolutely full of shit because it is too ingrained in our psyche everybody has biases that that manifest in eight million different ways the only power you have over your bias is to know how it might manifest and to take steps to try to control it and diminish it Um, so ignorance of bias is the most dangerous thing not the existence of it the existence of it is just a reality but all of us have the responsibility to get the word out get the knowledge out so that we can fight against the negative impact of it because this in group this is where we get stereotyping of people this is where stereotyping leads to prejudice leads to discrimination all these societal ills and woes have this at the root of it um and you know along with that kind of the idea of like stereotypes and bias we do in social psychology know that we have a person schema like anytime we have a schema or engage want to engage in stereotyping i again give us a break i'm like it's your brain trying to have cognitive efficiency and trying to take a sweet easy little shortcut to not have to overthink. Um, so if you think you can apply a stereotype to somebody, if you think you can apply a person schema, you can get minimal information about somebody and believe you know a lot about them. And that's why I say for like persons schemata, that's why we go to people and some of the first stuff we want to ask them is like, what's your job? Because we think if we get that piece, one piece of information, all of a sudden we're going to be able to make all these other assumptions about people. And that ain't got like, ain't got nothing to do sometimes with people like what just everybody who's an accountant is exactly the same way right like I have so many people that like their hair will turn gray I'll be like you know I'm a college professor psychologist like like I do all this and then they'll like my students will hear me get in my car and turn on gangster rap and you can almost see them do the exorcist when they're like I had a person schema about you being an uptight professor who does nothing but drink tea and and read old dusty books and then you get in the car and start listening to like rap one and it's like because I like what I like and just because I do one thing doesn't mean I can't do the other assumptions calm down um so that's you know where um Suki and I were actually talking about the halo and horn effect an extension of this person schema is that like with these assumptions we will assume positive things about people that are not true based on them having another a single positive quality or assume negative things and I talked about like a research study uh, that was actually published in the Huffington Post I believe it was about them having a moot trial a fake trial and they had randomly assigned people to be in the attractive woman's jury versus the unattractive woman's jury and attractiveness was based on whether or not the woman had a weight issue is how they defined it one woman was thin the other woman was obese and they presented the exact same data at both as far as evidence of her guilt and do you know consistently the thin woman was found not guilty and the obese woman was found guilty because we have um, a halo effect for attractive people that is powerful our brains Uh, If an attractive person makes eye contact with us, a reward center lights up. Babies will interact more with attractive people as defined by like features that have youth and symmetry and health. Um, So we are programmed from birth 
to be drawn towards attractive people. We tend to believe that attractive people are more ethical, more hardworking, more loyal, more positive, more intelligent. And guess what? None of those things have anything to do with how you look. Somebody can look like a friggin' troll and be a genius and be a wonderful person, but that is not what we tend to assume. We tend to assume negative things about unattractive people and positive things about attractive people. Um, and, you know, this again, the only power that you have to overcome it, because that junk is neurologically based, is to be aware of your bias. And that's part of like for job, for my, my PhD in industrial organizational psychology, we talked again and again and again about how the personal interview for a job was the biggest lump of bullshit that we'd ever seen. Because people will go in there and will use either, either the halo or horn effect of how the person presents themselves in the interview to make a determination about whether or not they're going to be a good employee. And that's bullshit. That is absolute bullshit um, because in many cases, all it is is about how attractive you are and how good you are at social monitoring and telling people what they want to hear in a given social situation to cultivate how they perceive you. Um, that's all an interview is about. Actually, a better indicator of how appropriate somebody will be for a job are personality assessments and work assessments where you're actually asked to do a model of what the job would be uh, and you get to you know, like produce a pseudo work product to see like and why more places don't do that I don't understand like some places if you told them you're not going to get to interview this person you're actually going to just hire not knowing what the person looks like not knowing any of their demographics you're just going to have to bare bones look at their work product a lot of workplaces would freak out how dare you say I don't get to interview the person oh well, I had a boss tell tell the HR person once I can tell whether they're a good hire in three questions mm -hmm. you know I just asked three psychological questions I had to just walk away because I was going to bust out Mm -hmm. laughing I was like okay look not only does that just not pass a smell test but there is plenty of data that proves you're full of shit um but he was a big old walking Dunning-Kruger um <laughs> where clearly his confidence outmatched his competence oh yeah so <laughs> there was no way he was going to be convinced mm -hmm. um otherwise um, and unfortunately, you know, we see a lot of halo and horn effect turned inward in coaching mm -hmm. where, you know, we've just been socialized that and, and we're seeing it a lot, unfortunately, in a lot of current events where people in, in positions that should be trusted. Um, and unfortunately, it's doctors um, have taken advantage of the role and the uniform and violated that trust because and uh you know taking advantage of that and we see that a lot where um people are you know saying you know i haven't achieved what i wanted to achieve i'm struggling with i should you know as women love to do i say this all the time quit shitting all over yourself <laughs> um you know i should like what i have um but you know i should like this job i should like the role i'm in and i don't um you know, I shouldn't want this, that, or the other. And we see that turned a lot inward with coaching. And sometimes the first thing you have to do is just accept that, like, you like what you like, you want what you want, uh, and, you, you know, and not try to attach too much positive or negative scheme, personal schema to that. Um, and and that, that can be a challenge. It's not as easy. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, Rome wasn't built in a day. It didn't burn in one either. So you got, you know, sometimes undoing all of that 
external socialization that tells us this is what you should put value on as opposed to um, what you intrinsically uh, need to put value on to make yourself uh, feel your own internal worth can be a bit of a challenge. Um, but that's, you know, the nice thing about life coaching is, is we can help you work through all that because we've had to do it for ourselves and we know what we oh, know God, yeah. that. So <laughs> please don't slog through that journey on your own. It's really hard. It's good to have some, some support along the way because it is hard work. And because like I just said, like part of why did I lay out all this research that some of you are geeky like us and you'll love it. Some people are like, oh my geez, I had to fast forward through all that. Who cares? But it's while we lay this out, like part of why I felt this was necessary is for you to give yourself a friggin' break. If you've maybe had biases in the past, if you caught yourself conforming, being obedient, like all, because it, I, I was just wanting to reinforce, there were ways that it was adaptive. Like there's a reason it was built into us through evolution, but you know what? Everything that always started out as being adaptive doesn't always remain adaptive. Like at some point it starts really interfering. And that's, that's this point about biases, these limiting beliefs that you've put on your yourself they your tendency to do it was rooted in an original purpose but it doesn't always work indefinitely you got to change your approach so on that note like what we were thinking about for life coaching is that like all these tendencies like maybe you have interest maybe you have abilities maybe there are things that you love that are not common that are not typical, that are not part of what you feel like as part of normal society, you can get, you know, a, a case of the heebie-jeebies thinking about talking with somebody about it because, oh, if I tell people about how I have a rock collection that I give different names and teach foreign languages, maybe they'll be like, you're a weirdo and you're not part of our group anymore. And you can be like, but, but somewhere deep primarily in my soul, I know that I have to conform and be accepted by the group to ultimately survive. So you can start having people that very much feel like I'm too weird. I don't belong. Nobody really can understand me. I'm ultimately alienated from others. And we are just very concerned about that happening because we are social creatures that tend to thrive in healthy social groups. But what does that mean? Does that mean that for your uniqueness or your freakiness that you don't share that with others or you hide it or do you have a different approach? And, you know, Adler was very cool about saying like, um, it, you know, we have a tendency that's innate in us to feel inferior to others as well. So that goes along with like when we feel like we are not like the group, that will tend to manifest as, as long as you're not a narcissist, as like it get like almost entwined in a feeling of inferiority, and that the group who is like itself is the right or correct or you know best way to be. Me, who is unique and different, is now inferior to the group. But Adler was like, well, no, like no, all of us have these feelings of inferiority and your, your way in life should be to just try to be a better version of yourself every day and not let them become an inferiority complex. Like that's not useful. And he said, we tend to like do things to try to protect ourselves, ex excuses, aggression, withdrawal. And that's where like, again, that's your tendency that you'll lean in that direction. But this is where for life coaching, we would probably help you not lean into these maladaptive behaviors. We'd help you lean into much more healthy and adaptive ways of expressing your uniqueness and not getting trapped in an inferiority complex, but acknowledging your uniqueness in a healthy way and being able to move forward. Um, so lots of resources that Suki's going to talk to that could kind of facilitate you kind of settling into this understanding that freaky and unique is not necessarily so bad, even in social situations. Yeah. So, and I'm going to throw one in here that wasn't originally on my list because I am obsessed uh, with them right now. So 
for you people that love um, music, I say check out Black Violin. They are a classical hip hop R&B duo. Um, two guys, one of who is a six foot two, like barrel chested black guy that plays the violin. Oh. <laughs> and it, they mix classical music, like hip hop, rap, R&B. There's like a little Al Green in there. I literally bought all four CDs in a pack. Can't wait to get the Christmas album. So if you're into like <laughs> something that's way out there and super cool, pick them up. If you're into something that's a little more numerous, and hits every genre. Check out Shel Silverstein. People that know me know that I gifted his greatest hits album to all the people I love for Christmas. Yay, yes. So yeah, <laughs> Shel Silverstein is fun. Um, the only one you'll have trouble getting is Freakers Ball, um, which includes the very interesting song, uh, Polly Was in a Porny. Um, <laughs> you know, most people know him for The Giving Tree, but he apparently wrote some very interesting adult work. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, he's got an interesting genre. More about him later. Um, so if you're into nonfiction, because you're super geek like we are, um, I highly recommend Far From the Tree. Um, there's both a film and documentary uh, written by Andrew Solomon and also The Power of Different. This was really good for those of you who, like me, um, have some what we now refer to as neurotypical differences um, or things that are normally categorized as uh, mental illnesses or uh, personality disorders. Um, at some point, I'll have to tell you why I don't like those phrases, but we don't have time right now. Um, I, 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 I prefer to describe them as something else. The word I prefer is quirky. So I tell people all the time, <laughs> I do not have a mental illness. I am hashtag quirkastic. So I'm pushing that people. Um, now, if you're into pop culture, I say X-Men. X-Men is an excellent example in the pop culture genre of people who are struggling with very distinct differences that they turn into superpowers and then build a family. I'll grant you that there's another group. Um, it's also an excellent example of how when we don't, when we take people who are different and force them into an out group, that can manifest as aggressiveness mm -hmm. um, and the dangers of that. The other more modern one is the Black Panther movie. Another um, excellent example, Killmonger, um, who is the villain, um, his aggressiveness comes from a feeling of rejection and it sparks in him a murderous rage that he in turn, uh, uh, turns around and turns on the Black Panther, who is supposed to be essentially his brother. They, that's the, he turns to the group that has rejected him. Um, so from a psychological standpoint, that's very interesting. So, okay, all ages books for those of you with children. Uh, the Missing Piece by Shel Silverstein is literally something that looks like a cheese wheel and he is looking for, uh, that's missing a slice and he is literally looking for the slice that fits in him so he's whole one can roll nice and smoothly. <laughs> the Point from 1971 about a little round-headed boy named Oblio <laughs> who goes to the pointless forest. He has been rejected by a town of people that all have pointed heads. Um, excellent all ages film just had its 30th anniversary. I watched it in school and then turned around and bought it and the soundtrack. Uh, don't at me, people. Um, <laughs> if you're into Rated R, uh, Rated R for Right On, Accepted, 
2006. It's all about college students who go to create their own college so they can follow their passions. I wish college was like this. I actually <laughs> would have loved to go to college like this, except for that bathroom situation in the movie. That's all other issues. <laughs> and what I call the quintessential come as you are collective, drum roll, please. The Adams family. Yes. They are everybody's freaky family. Um, they even tell you in the theme song. So you've got comic book collections from when it was on The New Yorker. You've got live action films. There's at least one animated film. There's a Broadway show. There's an Adams family for everybody. And one of the things I love about the Adams family, even if you go back to watching the old black and white, they never have a bad thing to say about anybody. <laughs> Adams family, literally everybody is in their in group. I, uh, I really believe the world would be better if we could all behave more like the Adams family. Yes. Everybody's in the in group. Even the people that are trying to do things that are malicious for some, somehow, some way, they can always be the best in everybody and everybody is in the in group. So mm. I love that. And let's face, let's face it. If you, if you like Adams family value, cousin, cousin, it's uh, oh. baby oh. could not be cuter. Except for Wyatt Marlowe. That's the only thing. <laughs> Just my, my baby is officially the cutest. Yeah. Was it cousin? Is. Cousin is little kids what is called what, correct? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's baby, little baby what? Little baby so, what? Yeah. We wanted to finish up by giving you just some little tips that um, if you're struggling to find your tribe, just some things that will kind of help you get started down that road. Um because, you know, we like to always send you away with some positive things that can help you sort of uh, uh, help you, help you, some takeaways that can help you get started. So the first thing you might want to do is look outside your immediate circle of friends, families, and acquaintances. Now, we're not saying cut them off. You're not rejecting them. However, if you were anemic and needed iron pills, would you feel bad for your spinach salad? No. So... Just think of them as a supplement to your social needs, um, especially with family. Um, sometimes you're going to have family that, you know, they just don't get you. They love you, but they don't get you. So you got to go out looking for people that have some of those common interests because, you know what, your mom's never going to want to watch anime with you. You got to go find a friend or somebody else who will. Um, now, this one is different. You need to break up with the fixer-uppers in your life, okay, people? Um, if you've got a friend who treats you like a makeover project, you, you need to cut them loose. Don't waste your time. You need to find people that think you are awesome. You need to find people that you think are fabulous and that together you're amazing, okay? Um, and you, especially if you're thinking of dating for them, one of my new favorite phrases, hashtag dot dotman. Um, Misty and I love yes. the dotman. They are amazing. The yes. dotmans are amazing relationship counselors. We love them. Um, yeah, you, you should not date or marry anybody that thinks you need quote unquote fixing. Okay. Mm -hmm. You are not a you're you're not a house that needs to be clipped, people. So if you're if you're hanging out with fixer uppers, people that always think you need to be self-improved, those are the people you break up with. Okay, cut them loose. 
right now on TikTok and like reels on Instagram, one of the ones I love is they have little video clips now of when you married the weird one. And it shows like a mom dressed up as a giraffe and like, like taking it. <laughs> and it's like, I love it because it's almost like, Hey, like everybody else was ignoring this treasure. And when you like ended up giving this person your time and attention, but did not try to change who they were, look at your adulthood now and the person that you have married to you, raising your children. And they're in there doing like so much fun stuff with your kids. Like there's one of, you know, when you were nice to the weird one and ended up married to her and she's in there cooking the, her husband dinner, but to keep from like the onions from making her eyes water, she's got like the entire top lid to a container, a glass lid, like in her hoodie. <laughs> so that, like, so it's covering up her face. So she doesn't cry but it's like but she's making you dinner like you have this wonderful amazing relationship but it was like you took the brave step to accept her how she was and then you end up with a you know a really uh, gem of a marriage for it kind of thing oh yeah anybody that knows me and my wife know that we like we dance down supermarket aisles we do not care like we've been known to do the the walk from like the monkeys talk about showing your age down the aisle like <laughs> music comes on and like we just did we don't care we just like but you know it was one of those things where even in high school people are like yeah like there were they said there's a lid for every pot they're like yeah it was the two of you like there was never gonna be but we have so much fun just being weird together it is hilarious um and, and that's another thing so number three is take a walk on the weird side go somewhere you usually don't visit um now some of this is going to be covid contingent depending on where you are and your vaccination status yada yada but think about places and events that you may have avoided because you were afraid of what other people would think um so that's going to be a lot of online stuff for now um costumes are optional but hey maybe go to comic-con um john lewis god rest him he went to comic-con not a place you might think of seeing him but there he was maybe go to a poetry reading if you're worried that your friends are going to be like ew you in poetry that's probably the place you should be mm -hmm. um you know me and my wife people look at us and they're like we've never seen you guys ever wear a dress but you know where we have been we have been to the opera we have been to see modern ballet. We have been to see regular ballet for that matter. <laughs> and you know what? We roll up in there and we're like, yeah, we're here. We love it. Get over it. You know what? Go to places that you might not have normally gone because you're worried if the people there judge you, but especially if you're the people that know you'd be like, you're like, what? That's going to be the place where you're going to find people that have common interests with you. Um, something else you might not have thought of Try volunteering. Um, that's a great place to find people that you've got common cause with, people that you care about. You might even find other people that you align with. You'd be surprised how many ways there are to volunteer online, especially if you're an introvert or a little bit shy. And again, you know, things are crazy out there right now. Don't have shots. You know, find an online group until it's safe to do the offline things again. It can be something as simple as adopting a highway, maybe go check out your local library, but look into volunteering. Um, now you may get really brave, use old tech or new tech, start your own group. You got Facebook, um, you know, which is 
pretty freaking dirty. Um, there's a whole lot of apps and platforms out there that you can do your own thing. Um, you know, or, you know, you could try moderating a group, start a network from scratch if you're super tech savvy or um, piggyback off one of those uh, platforms. You've got some are free, some are not free. But the, the, the important thing to remember is that you deserve a safe space where you can just be yourself. So um, kick out the trolls, but make a space that's where it's okay for you to be uniquely you. That's the goal. Um, the other thing you can do, join a class. The gym doesn't count because you're going to be on a treadmill with earbuds. Learn to draw, take up tap dancing, um, bunko, although I don't know what it is. I've heard it's very popular. Oh, my um, goodness. What is with these ladies in these neighborhoods getting wasted, like, oh, no, Wednesday night playing some bunko? I, I got I to gotta get invited to one of those. Yeah, I got to. <laughs> um, virtual chess, I've heard, is very popular. Um, you know, or you can teach a class, you know, uh, Zoom classes are a thing along with Google Meets or whatever. Um, but the whole thing is get a group together, have a good time. You don't have to be masters of anything. So I'm just like, hey, Pino and paint people just get together, you know, teach something, learn something, have a good time. So here's the big one. And it may sound counterintuitive, but you may have to become really comfortable becoming a tribe of one um Brene Brown gave a TED talk once and she talked about being comfortable standing out um rather than fitting in and standing out so that um standing out versus fitting in because that's how you learn to belong and the other thing is is that when you stand out it's easier for like-minded people to find you um and it's not easy Trust me, I know, um, but sometimes that's the first thing you have to do is you have to be able to stand on your own two feet and be a tribe of one and let the tribe come to you. So that's the big, bold, testy one. Um, and if you're not ready to do that alone, call one of us, we'll help you work on that. Um, but how do they get you, Suki? Tell them how they find you. Okay, um, you can find me at wildascentia.com introductions at Wild Essentia, um, and also my uh, my phone number is listed on the website, so uh, uh, give me a call, um, and we'll, uh, we'll help you build your tribe. What about you, Misty? For me, you can go to the website, mistymarlow.com, or you can just email me directly at email at mistymarlow.com. When you go to my website, I have allowed my freak flag to fly because you can sign up for a UFO experience with me, which was my fun and little freaky way to talk about coaching and to really try to attract by standing out those people who are like-minded that um, enjoy the more unique things in life and will get the UFO references because that's their humor or that's actually what they're interested in because I, just to let you know, love the paranormal, um, love psychic phenomenon, love anything strange or unusual um, in that way so anybody that has that unique interest and they're like figuring out a way to stand up for that though you're my people please come see me please come get me so again mistymarlow.com or email at mistymarlow so and as a side note um before you judge anybody especially yourself just a shout out to jonathan swiftville for travel 
I think one of the best things he ever came up with is what he called the Wenham pause, where like the horses before they said anything would pause for like four seconds. So like, mm -hmm. I, that's my suggestion for everybody today. Like before you judge, maybe before you speak, take like a four second Wenham pause <laughs> and, um, and just give it and cut yourself some slack, cut the people around you some slack. And I'm not going to take a win and pause. Instead, what I'm going to do is say to you what my grandmother used to say to me. If you can't be good, be good at it. And we Yay, will see next time with Super Power to Super Freaky Parts. <laughs> I can't even say it. With Super Freaks and Superpowers Part Two, which is going to be on creative, right, Misty? Yeah, I think that's what we plan. I mean, we'll change up if we feel like it, but that's what we're planning for now. So, y'all take care. Thanks so much. See you next All time. Right. We'll hear you, you next time. time. Bye.